Welcome to the first bonus episode of The Modern Extractor. This podcast focuses on the processes, equipment, and science found in a cannabis extraction laboratory. I'm your host, Jason Showard, and I work professionally in the cannabis extraction field. Season one wrapped up in February after taking us through the ethanol extraction and post-processing workflow. We followed material through a lab, digging deep into each stage in the process as it made its way from cultivar to concentrate. Now we're currently in production on season two, which is focusing on hydrocarbon extraction. I'm very excited to announce that the first episode of season two is scheduled for release on May 4th. I'm also excited to welcome you all to the first ever bonus episode of The Modern Extractor. In this bonus episode, I thought it was important to cover a technology that is poised to be quite the disruptor in the extraction industry. The focus of today's show is Organic Solvent Nanofiltration, or OSN for short. The technology isn't new, and it's been used in various other industries for years, but the cannabis-specific R&D is starting to pay off, and OSN systems are looking more and more like viable components to your extraction lineup by the day. I've had my eye on OSN technology since watching a presentation on it at Concentration 2019. My takeaway then was that this technology had incredible potential, but still had some kinks to work out before it would really see large-scale adoption in our industry. Today on the show, we'll talk to a man who has made it his mission to work out those kinks and to bring OSN membrane technology to the extraction masses. He's the founder of Molecular Forces Consulting, as well as the creator of the X-Spiral Organic Solvent Nanofiltration System. Zev Feinstein, welcome to The Modern Extractor. Nice of you to have me. Absolutely. Tell me, tell me a little bit about how you got started in the cannabis field. I got started in the cannabis field. Well, I always wanted to get started because I was graduating college around the time that the uh, recreational legalizations were first happening. I didn't graduate quite in time to get in on the Washington one, but I could tell that it was probably the next two years going to be legal in Oregon. So this was a long-term plan from a while back. I got my master's degree in 2015, and as soon as I had gotten uh, that finished with, I went to the cannabis industry immediately. First, I did a little bit of consulting. I got jobs through various in-person meetups from the Marijuana Business Association and other groups like that. Worked for a little bit with legal with legal sodas, doing a research formulation on their water-soluble formulas. Then after that, I worked for Rose City Labs as their QC manager for a year, doing testing labs. During that time, we had just gotten onto the compliant testing scheme developed by the OHA, and I guided them through that process of accreditation in the early days. After that was over with, I worked for a gummy company uh, doing distillation for their in-house oil refinement. And after that, I was the lab director at Precision Alchemy for two years in Portland. I built their lab out from the beginning, right after they had gotten their OLCC license for REC, having previously been a medical company. After that, I went into my own consulting company, Molecular Forces Consulting. I worked in that field for of just doing consulting for a year while I was developing my equipment platform. And for the last uh, eight months or so, I have been... Uh, selling and installing my X-Spiral systems and have diverted my business uh, almost entirely to focusing on that. I do do a little consulting still. Yeah, Molecular Forces is how I came across you. Uh, At what point did you decide to decide, you know, hey, I'm going to go for it, start my own business in the field? What what made you go that route? It was a a tough decision for sure. I was just, uh, I'd been in a variety of situations over the years where I had felt like one, I hadn't had enough time to 
or uh, support from the companies I worked for to work on the special projects I was most interested in. I had been trying to get membrane systems installed at my uh, extraction lab that I was working at for many months and the capital wasn't there and the interest wasn't there. Uh, and beyond that, I had realized there was just a lot more potential for uh, growth in the field, working for myself. I wouldn't have to be dependent on other people for my income. Uh, you know, if I if I was struggling, I could feel like it was my own fault. Uh, so after a while of thinking about it, I just said it made more sense to to be an entrepreneur. Right on. Well, congratulations for starting your own thing and and getting that going. Uh, you said it's been going for about eight months now. Uh, Molecular Forces Consulting as a company has been going for two years, but the uh, X-Spiral product line of Molecular Consulting uh, was officially re- launched, I believe, eight months ago. Right on. Well, congratulations on that one. Um, give us a little bit of a bird's eye view on what Molecular Forces is as a company and then how the X-Spiral relates into that. Molecular Forces as a company was originally founded with the idea of, of handling people's build-outs uh, starting new labs from scratch with people who weren't necessarily had a lot of experience in the field. I took on uh, projects like that in New Mexico and Oklahoma. These were build outs that came from absolutely nothing. In one case, they started with just a plot of land and constructed the whole building on top of it. And now they are licensed and extracting in that state. I handled other projects of that sort. So what I would do is I'd you know, here are what people were trying to do as far as their extraction throughputs. I would go ahead and propose a budget, draw them floor plans, come out to their facility and help implement all the equipment installations, develop all the SOPs, train all the employees, get them in a shape where they're actually producing, and then provide remote support after that point. That was all well and good, uh, and I still do do that when requested, but I've lately focused more to the equipment sales because I've just developed what I think is a really great product that you know, is getting a lot more interest than just being another consultant out there. Yeah, the uh, the X spiral is what made me want to uh, bring you on the show today. I've been interested in nanofiltration for a while now, uh, and the uh, the whole concept of nanofiltration seems to be getting a little bit more traction in the extraction industry right now. Um, talk us through how your X spiral units work, what they look like, what kind of machinery and processes that the nanofiltration could replace in your your standard extraction lab. Sure. So an X-spiral system is basically a series of filter housings that use a special kind of uh, filtration element that's called a uh, tangential flow filtration module. And basically what that is is a scroll of filter paper, basically. Uh, It's not paper, it's a form of polymer, but fluid passes through the leaves of the scroll and then permeates into them. And so there's always additional fluid passing over the surface that's washing away the residue left by the previous amount that got filtered. So unlike a regular filter paper that just accumulates more and more crud on top of it until it gets clogged, these are self-cleaning and they continually wash off all the residue from themselves. And as long as you keep a strong flow of feed going into them, they basically never get dirty or clogged. Uh, And in this case, these are made of special material. They're not just a micron filter that filters out coarse, undissolved particulates. They filter out actual dissolved solids based on their molecular weights because the pores on these 
are much below a micron. They're on the scale of a nanometer, which is the scale of individual molecules, and that's why they're called nanofiltration. And so uses in this case, you can run a feed of uh, extraction tincture, and based on what membrane pore size you select, it can filter out certain impurities in the solvent and not others. So in a de-waxing application, you target it so that the wax you know, microglobules that are uh, dissolved in solution can be filtered out while all the cannabinoids pass through freely. Whereas in a solvent recovery application, you could choose a, a tighter membrane and you can reject everything. None of the cannabinoids, none of the terpenes will pass through that filter, only the ethanol that was dissolved in will. And in that mode, it works like a falling film, removing all the ethanol from the solution and just reducing a concentrated oil. So it sounds like you guys are disrupting quite a few of the, the processes that are taking place in your standard extraction line uh, with your, with your nanofiltration. That said, the experience that I have is primarily with lenticular filtration. Uh, and that is after running a cold extraction. Um, but, we, we interviewed Maria from Scott Laboratories on our filtration episode uh, who make these lenticular filters. And she was telling us that a lot of the colloidal material is being filtered out when, when using a lenticular because of the, the charge of the DE that is in the, the filters that most people use. Now, there isn't going to be any kind of a charge there, and it's not necessarily based on a, uh, a pore size or a mesh size uh, as yours is. Now, you're still able to get all of the, the fats, the waxes, the lipids uh, out using this strictly with the membrane uh, hole or pore size? Well, first of all, that's not entirely the case. Actually, the polymeric material that these are made of do carry a charge, and that's important when they're used in the water industry to reject ionic materials from the water streams. Okay. So there is actually an electric effect that goes on, too, when it comes to the rejection properties of these membranes, as well as judgments based on the hydrophilicity or hydrophobicity of the material selected for the membrane. So it's a combination of that and the pore size effects. But at the same time, yeah, a pore size does make a big difference to it. And part of that reason is because uh, even a diatomaceous earth filter only has pores that are in the, you know, sub-micron, you know, hundreds of nanometer range. Whereas we're looking at pore sizes on the order of one nanometer. Diatomaceous earth can't really filter out dissolved solids other than by flocculating them as the result of electric effects like you're discussing. Uh, whereas a pore size on the order of one nanometer or 1.5 nanometer actually can filter out dissolved solids directly with no need for them to first aggregate. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. You're, uh, you're certainly going to make some waves with this one. Uh, how long has the, the concept of nanofiltration being used in the cannabis space been around? The first time I remember seeing about the concept of nanofiltration is in reference to cannabis was mid 2018 when Ivonic put out a white paper on the subject that was then uh, broadcast on Sterilitech, which is, I think, where it came, where I first came across it. That came out, I think, in May of 2018. I haven't found any references to it that are, 
traceable online before then, although I have occasionally talked to people who said they had been uh, fooling around with the concept before then. Now, the overall concept of nanofiltration and organic solvents, of course, dates back decades and in water uh, even longer. All right. So then what your X spiral will do if you're putting them in the right places in your lineup, you can theoretically skip whatever filtration processes you're using to filter out waxes. And then you can also skip whatever means of solvent recovery that you're using. Is that, is that accurate? I would say that that's mostly accurate because there is some limits of this capability. It can't remove oil, uh, solvent oil down to absolute dryness because the oil still needs to be thin enough to be kept mobile over the membranes as I was describing. So really what you can do is remove all the ethanol up until you're at about a one-to-one of oil to ethanol mix, and then it needs to be finished off in some kind of decarb system, much like much like the typical following film works. Gotcha. So you, it'll do the majority of the work, and then you can make your own decisions on how you want to remove the rest of it. Um, so why would I switch uh, from my traditional processes to nanofiltration? What are the what are the benefits for doing that? Well, the biggest benefit is a incredible reduction in energy use. Uh, it turns out, in fact, that it takes a lot more energy to boil off solvent than it does to simply pressurize solvent up to a specified transmembrane pressure. The later only needs a pump, the former needs uh, electricity for heating and condensation, often vacuum assistance as well. I have a paper that I've developed on this to show people, but essentially the energy reduction is almost 95% compared to a falling film. For instance, my 400 gallon per hour X spiral eight, it runs only on 30 amps of 480 volt electricity, whereas a comparable system from say true steel for doing 300, and 400 gallons an hour might require a 600 amp breaker. And likewise, you know, to a, to, it's not as extreme as a 95% reduction. It's more like a 60% reduction. But when you look at the energy it takes to cool down, uh, fluid to a low enough temperature to winterize compared to this process. There's also significant energy savings and time savings in that area. Yeah. So I guess that, that brings me back around to let's clarify here. Um, there are two separate applications for an X spiral system in your typical extraction lineup. One of which is your de-waxing and your removal of the colloidal materials that, you know, in a typical extraction setup, you're going to usually be running minus 40-ish. Um, if you listen to my previous episodes of the show, let's just say you got, you're following those SOPs. You're running at about minus 40 um, for both the, the ethanol and the biomass. So you will have had to chill your ethanol, chill your biomass. Now you do your extraction. With that, you're going to get less of the chlorophyll, less of the sugars, less of the colloidal materials being extracted from the actual leaf material, and then you're going to take that and, while cold, run it through some type of a filter, for me, usually a lenticular filter, and then move on down to solvent recovery. So let's just talk about the X-spiral from the standpoint of the de-waxing, and then we'll move on to the solvent recovery. So in this situation, you're saying that we can run at room temperature, so we're skipping a lot of our 
energy usage to chill the ethanol and to chill our biomass. So now you're saying that we can extract at room temperature and that the X spiral is going to be able to filter out all of these things that we were trying to avoid extracting by running cold. Is that accurate? Uh, that's accurate. I recommend a warm run. Um, to, to be fair, though, I this is a de-wax membrane. It can't be assumed to remove all types of material. For instance, it doesn't remove all the chlorophyll that you may have avoided extracting. But as far as the removal of wax, which is uh, what I'm targeting here, it does that very well. Okay, so w- if, if used um, as the de-waxing uh, solution and you're running warm, I'd imagine that those chlorophylls and then some of the sugars that you're going to be avoiding extracting when extracting cold are going to make their way through. What is the solution for dealing with that if you do use uh, a warm extraction followed by an X-spiral membrane? The performance on sugars is also fairly good. Uh, It results in up to a 90% reduction of those sugars. Uh, The main thing that passes through the membranes fairly easily is chlorophyll. It does reduce some of the chlorophyll, but if you want, if your desire is to go to a distillation process, I don't think that the, that chlorophyll alone as a contaminant is necessarily a barrier. If you do desire to have more of a nice looking crew that's free of chlorophyll, a combination of de-waxing and simple activated carbon filtration will leave a very nice looking extract. Understood. Okay. Um, prior to post extraction and prior to passing your uh, micella through the X spiral, uh, what kind of filtration is necessary to keep those membranes healthy and, and not, uh, not getting beat up by any kind of solids that are, that are coming through from the extraction? Yeah, the main thing to prevent membranes from getting beat up is to remove any kind of rigid or gritty solid from the mix, anything that could ha- scratch the membrane surface. A soft solid, like some amount of wax that's been falling out of solution, is no barrier, but something like bits of keef or dirt can be a problem, and those can be removed if you just run them through a filter of uh, 10 microns or so. Okay. Uh, When your machinery is in use, what do you recommend for doing that prior to, to going into your system? I recommend just running all of your solution prior through a 10 micron or even a 20 micron bag filter. Okay. That takes care of all the grit that could potentially hurt the membranes. Dissolved solids are no problem. Uh, but uh, anything that's, you know, could be a little bit of a rock shard or something like that needs to be filtered out. Understood. Okay. So that's a pretty simple process to put in line as a, you know, a 10 micron bag filter piece of cake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, cool. Uh, moving on from that, let's let's move on to what it looks like to use the X spiral for solvent recovery. So you've de-waxed running through the first one, and now do you go directly from that into a second X spiral to do your solvent recovery? That's what I would recommend. I mean, you should uh, you know have an intermediate holding tank just to make sure that the system is buffered. But I would go immediately from that to the solvent recovery process. And to be clear, the solvent recovery isn't isn't dependent on the winterization. You can run you can run it on unwinterized extract just as easily. Understood. Okay, so let's just say you were doing a consulting gig and somebody asked you to implement your X spirals into uh, building a full extraction line, uh, preparing for for distillation. What does that line look like if you would like to utilize the X spiral for both de-waxing 
and for uh, solvent recovery? So the way I would set up such a line is you'd have your primary extraction, you know, in a form that's appropriate for scale, you know, for a mid scale, a, a centrifugal extraction would work well for a larger scale. There's a variety of options. Then it would go from there through the coarse filtration into the first holding tank. That holding tank will be the unwinterized solution. From there, it would go into the first X spiral and divide it into two streams, the wax slurry and the winterized solution. The wax slurry will go into you know, some kind of a waste outlet and the, the wax slurry will go into a new buffer tank, that buffer tank serving as the feed for the solvent recovery X spiral. And again, the solvent recovery X spiral will do the same thing, splitting that into two streams. One will be the clean ethanol coming out and the other stream will be the concentrated oil solution, which can be set at your preference, but is maxed out at about a one-to-one output. Okay. And then moving on from there, um, you've got one-to-one. Now what? So I take that one-to-one and I run it into an evaporation tank. Some of the very largest facilities may find a continuous approach more appropriate. I've been working with Sci-Fi Systems to debut a combo unit that uses that with a specialized wiped film specifically for evaporating solvents. And they can take that one-to-one or two-to-one solution, I believe is what they rated theirs for, and get that to a complete decarbed dry oil in a smaller size setup that doesn't require, you know, a real continuous stream of an evaporation tank is a very good solution. And you can also do the decarboxylation in there to prepare yourself for white film distillation. All right. So moving on to kind of the next section of this, I think it's pretty important to get everybody up to speed on uh, the vernacular that will be used here with uh, retentate and permeate. Absolutely. So with a, with a typical filter, you're going to push your micella through this filter. The retentate is what gets caught by the filter, and the permeate is what goes on by and is the, the filtered material. With, with your X spirals, this is a, a different kind of scenario where there's really nothing getting caught like your typical filter most people will think of and there's just two streams coming out which are the retentate and the permeate yeah so you start with feed it goes through the membrane scroll and the stuff that passes through without permeating the membrane is the retentate and instead of just sitting on the membrane like in a dead-end filtration setup it, it just gets ejected by the new feed that's coming and and pushing it out. And then there's the stuff that actually went through the membrane. That's the permeate. All right. So that said, uh, when using an X-Pyrol for de-waxing, how much of your micella or your desirables remain in that retentate stream? So essentially, just like the winterization, just like the solvent recovery membrane, rather, that takes it down to a one-to-one oil to ethanol content, the winterization me- membrane does the same thing. It takes the wax down to a one-to-one wax to micella content. And so based on the amount of wax that's in your solution, you can infer from that what the loss is. Understood. So, I mean, with a, with a typical warm run, um, I mean, let's say that you're, you're processing 100 gallons of, of micella. How many gallons 
ballpark are you looking at being stuck with the the waste stream of the the rotentate? So if you just extract a hundred gallons, like one pass over material, then you're going to end up with an oil content in that solution that's about two percent. Now the oil itself isn't wax, you know, it's oil that itself has maybe a 10% wax content. Mm -hmm. So we'd be looking at the wax content of that 100 gallons as being about 0.2% by that reckoning. So what you're going to have happen is you're going to remove micella until that, until you had that 0.2% wax, and then an equivalent mass of micella that that's stuck with it. So that would be in this case, 0.2 0.2 gallons of wax and 0.2 gallons of tincture out of the original 100. So that's not too terrible there. Yeah, it depends on the wax content of what you're dealing with. You know, sometimes I've been de-waxing CO2 oil that had upwards of like 25% wax content and it's a lot more, uh, you know, fluid gets retained. Still not a tremendous amount, as I just explained, because it's only based on the potency of solution. But if you're doing a scenario where you're like dissolving oil one to 10 and the oil itself has a 25% wax content, then you can start to get in cases where there's a lot of fluid entrainment. But the solution that is simple, you can just add some additional ethanol into it once it's done, re-dilute that tincture and then filter it through again. That's what I was going to ask you next is, is there a way to get that back? Some of us just can't sleep at night if we know we're throwing good stuff away. Right. Yeah, there's a, there's an easy solution because the waxes still won't pass through no matter how much you're diluting them. So just topping off with some fresh ethanol will allow, will dilute down the perme- the uh, micella accordingly, and then you can pass another round of, of fluid through and you know cut that loss in half, cut it in a quarter, depending on how much you add. Understood. That's uh, that's fantastic news. That was uh, that was one of my big questions that I had to to get answered by getting you on the phone today. So next up, when uh, when you're using an X-Spiral for solvent recovery, you're flipping it around where now your retentate is your cannabinoids and your terpenes and your permeate stream is going to be your solvent that you are allowing to permeate through, correct? Exactly. Okay. So that said, when, uh, when using the X-Spiral for the solvent recovery, how many of the cannabinoids and terpenes uh, and, and desirables remain in that permeate stream with your ethanol? So this is a process that I've examined extensively because it's what everybody wants to know. And I actually offer a range of membranes to deal with this issue in accordance with the customer preferences because there's some tighter membranes that reject you know, 99.99% of cannabinoids leave a pearly, you know, pristine permeate that doesn't even have any detectable terpenes in it. But then in response, because they're so tight, they're going to be a little slower. Then you can go, the next membrane I offer is a little looser. It lets over the aggregate of a run about 1% of the cannabinoids through instead of none. But you're getting a 50% speed increase, you know, to compensate for that 1% of loss. So generally I've offered those two options to customers and they've picked one or the other based on whether they want, you know, really clean permeate coming out or they want a faster rate because they're just going to be feeding that permeate back into the next round of extraction. 
And then you can go even looser than that if you want to get some really fast rates. And at that point, you're kind you're allowing so many of the terpenes through that it kind of changes function to being a, a membrane that can be used for terpene isolation because it's getting such a high proportion of the terpenes permeating through it, but still rejecting most of the cannabinoids. That's interesting right there. So I would imagine that so few of the cannabinoids and the terpenes are uh, slipping by and ending up with your solvent that rather than trying to recover those, you're just going to go ahead and use that solvent again for another extraction. That's what everybody has chose to do so far, excepting you know, the cases where they actually were interested in that terpene separation function. In those cases, they might recover the the you know dirty permeate so to speak with a with either a with either switching to a tighter membrane and rerunning it or just evaporating it. Understood. Yeah, I'd imagine if that was the case, you're probably going to that's going to be not an ethanol extraction, but uh, some other type of an extraction that that's gentler on the terpenes that then quickly gets dissolved in ethanol and then and, and then filtered. Uh, is that what you're seeing, or are you seeing people going after those terpenes from an ethanol extraction? No, I'm seeing them going after the terpenes from an ethanol extraction. I mean, actually, the reason why ethanol is rough on the terpenes is because you have to evaporate it uh, with more aggressive conditions. So with when you're using membranes, that's not necessarily a problem because you already dealt with most of the solvent without evaporation. All right. All right. I like where you're going here. Uh, so, But no, I haven't seen anybody need to clean up their ethanol further except in that case where they were actually trying to get like a value-added product out of the ethanol. Okay, so earlier we talked a little bit about chlorophyll slipping on by. Um, I think that's not a bad price to pay for not having to chill everything down and for being able to run room temperature. Um, it's great that it makes room temperature extraction viable. So let's talk about that chlorophyll removal. Uh, I've also heard you speak about how your membrane systems uh, will improve the downstream adsorbance uh, performance. So talk to me a little bit about that. that. That's an area where there's a lot of gains to be made because uh, as a lot of people will tell you who are well-versed in chromatography, one of the main thing that, things that blinds media isn't actually the oil or even what they're absorbing. It's any it's the residual fats or uh, gums that, that are, remain in it. And those phospholipid gums aren't actually removed through conventional winterization, but they are removed uh, to a large extent through nanofiltration because while they don't really drop out with temperature, they are fairly big molecules. So just because you've removed gums, sugars, waxes, and other things that blind the media, it'll last a lot longer. The absorptive capacity of carbon for chlorophyll when it's just targeting chlorophyll is actually very high and Furthermore, the amount of chlorophyll being absorbed is not tremendous either because it only takes a little bit to really make your solution look dark. You know, it's got the one drop of ink effect going on. Uh, so generally when you're trying to remove chlorophyll with carbon, you know, the, chlor the carbon's getting used up not when it is saturated with chlorophyll, but when it's saturated with all the other stuff it's absorbing on the side. All right. That makes sense. So... Now let's say I want to use your your X bio unit in my in my extraction line um, for both dewax and solvent recovery, but like many of the labs out there, uh, I've got budgetary concerns, and I want to try to use one X housing and unit with uh, with different 
with different membranes in it so that I can use it for both of these processes. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what that looks like and how, how, easy of a, uh, how easy it is to do that. So for the larger two size units, my Xperial 4 and 8, I actually have a special configuration of the unit for people who seek to do that that has two sets of housings. You fill one set with the D-wax membranes, you fill one set with the solvent recovery membranes, and then you can just flip a ball valve to, to change from one function to the other, which doesn't require any particular labor. Yeah, now we're talking. Uh, unfortunately, the, the two and a half inch uh, basic version doesn't have that feature, and I don't have any plans to introduce it because of uh, kind of ergonomic concerns with the way that unit is shaped. But so in that case, you will have to actually take the membranes out and put the new ones in. You don't need to throw those membranes you took out away. You can put them in a in, in holding and, and bring them back again at the end of the day. But there is a labor associated with changing the membranes each time you want to change functions. That said, lots of people have said that's fine with them and have gone down that route. And you do, after a few tries, get pretty fast at it. But let me let me sidebar you here for a second, and let's talk about handling and storage of these membranes. I would imagine the more you actually have them out of their housings and the more you're handling them, the more prone to damaging them you are. So what would it look like if you wanted to take these out of the housings and store them for for use uh, next time you want to do de-waxing as you transfer over to your solvent recovery membranes? So when you want to take a membrane out, the first thing you should do is wash it with some clean solvent, get out any residual you know, gunk from the day's running you've been doing, just like you would if you're going to turn off the system for the day. Then when they're clean and drained, you can open up the system and take the membranes out. And then the next important thing is you can store them, but you need to store them in the same kind of solvent that they're going to be immersed in when in operation, because these membranes, once they've if they become wetted and then they dry out, their performance permanently alters and not in a positive way. So you never want to let them dry out as soon as you put them into operation? You don't want to let them dry out as soon as you put it in operation. If they're sitting drained, you know, but they still have a bunch of ethanol in their layers for a while, that's not really a problem. But you don't want to just take them out and have them sitting bare where, they're, where all the stuff in their layers is going to evaporate into the air. That's what's going to kill them. So then I would imagine you'd have some kind of a tube. I mean, you could build it out of PVC if you wanted to, or some kind of ideally stainless. You build it out of stainless if you wanted to, and then just drop them into these storage tubes. Yeah, some people drop them in storage tubes that are stainless like that. Or in my case, I ha- at my personal lab, I have, you know, dozens and dozens of membranes. So I got these really long storage tubs, and I just put them all on top of each other in there and then take out whichever one I'm going to be trying out from it. Okay. So you would pull them out, uh, you'd put them in whatever your storage solution is, you'd get the solvent recovery ones out of uh, a storage solution that you've got them stored in, pop those right back on in, clamp everything back together, and, and you're ready to run. That's exactly the way it works. Now, how do, they, uh, how do these filter housings disassemble? Is it tri-clamp? The way that they connect to the overall system itself is tri-clamp, but the way that the housing's caps go on is based on another convention used for high-pressure vessels, because these are very uh, highly pressure-rated. They're rated up to 1,000 PSI, and uh, tri-clamps, especially over the size of like one-inch, can't uh, deal with that. 
Understood. What is your uh, your running pressure of these machines? The pressure that they're that I tend to run at is about 600 psi for solvent recovery and 150 psi for winterization. Okay, so it's uh, as your your micella is flowing in, it's that pressure that's really forcing uh, forcing the permeate through to the lower pressure zone. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. Interesting. It's just that, yeah, it's just like regular filtration in that way. Pressure forces things over the membranes, but the difference compared to regular filtration is that the direction of flow of the feed is not the same direction as the pressure differential. They're they're per- they're uh, perpendicular to each other. That's why it's called tangential flow filtration or perpendicular flow filtration. Okay, great. Uh, how how frequently do you need to change uh, membranes if you if you're handling everything correctly, you're storing everything correctly, you're filtering leading up to it the right way, you know, you're doing everything right. How frequently do you need to change these membranes out? If you're doing everything right, they'll last easily six months. I say easily six months. My longest installation right now uh, with this, with the same set of membranes has been going on for six months. And in that six months of time, there hasn't been any change in performance. So Realistically speaking, the time's longer than that, but I don't want to promise a specific time that hasn't been vetted, and I can say they've worked for six months at this point with no signs of trouble. I respect that a lot. There are so many equipment manufacturers out there that will promise you the moon and uh, don't really know if they can deliver. So (laughs) good on you for, for, for only doing what you know. I'm telling people now then to expect to replace it in six months, but... You know, the, the truth is that the people at the six month level haven't ordered a replacement yet and haven't reported any degradation. All right. Six months plus. That sounds good. Uh, so moving on from that, how much do these membranes cost when you want to replace them? Uh, let's say for the for the smaller unit. For the smaller unit, a single membrane costs $400. The small unit has four housings. So if you got to replace all the membranes, which is usually the mode that you're going to be operating on, you're going to need to spend 1600 and then what about for the larger units the larger units uh you can multiply that up the x-barrel four the price is twice as much that's 3200 for a change for the x-barrel eight it's three times as much that's 4800 for a change but the year i mean in, on say an x-barrel eight you will have pushed thousands upon thousands of gallons you'll have pushed a ridiculously amount of fluid uh you know the, the uh the price is three times higher, but the throughput versus the two and a half size membranes is um, more than ten times higher. Okay, great. That's uh, that's good to know. Um, how do you know when it's time to change one? Is there uh, is there some kind of an indicator that lets you know that something's not working quite right? Yeah. So there's a few modes of failure. If you're doing everything right, the only mode of failure you should experience is fouling, which is just the real gradual accumulation of, of stuff that's become absorbed into the chemical materials of the of the membrane that just gradually make it slower. That's what you'll see. It, you should see the exact same separations you used to, and it's just over time, it's gotten slower and isn't working at the same rate it was on day one. So there's a, a point of concern there for me, which is um, how are we quantifying seeing the same separations that we're used to? If that's one of the parts of our litmus test for, for replacing the membrane, um, is this something that we're going to have to be testing uh, every so often to make sure we're getting these same separations and that it's running slower? 
Well, that could mean different things for different people. You know, in my case, I have an in-house HPLC and I routinely test the permeate and the retentate uh, to see any changes. But realistically speaking, if you're used to seeing totally clear permeate coming out, you know, a change in separation should be visibly should be visible in the terms of now there's more color in the solution than there used to be when I was running the exact same product. Understood. But that's not the mode of failure that you're going to see most often. If you're only having fouling, that's not going to affect the change of separations. If you're seeing a change in separations, that's related more to damage to the membrane that occurs from it being scratched, for instance, because you didn't filter the feed enough. Well, so let me approach this from a different angle. Let's say that I'm uh, a smaller scale lab. I don't have an in-house HPLC. Um, I would rather not frequently send out uh, my material at this stage in the process for testing, um, cause that can get expensive. Uh, what's going to be like, what's going to be my indicator as a smaller lab, uh, to say, Hey, maybe I should change my filter. Your indication as a smaller lab is either going to be, Oh, I used to get, you know, 40 gallons per hour out of this machine and now it's doing 30. That's not great. I'd like to have 40 gallons back. Uh, let's get a new set. Or what you might say is, Hey, my permeate, used to come out completely clean and clear and it didn't smell like terpenes. Now it's got a little yellow tint and it smells like terpenes. I don't like that. Understood. Let, let's say that it actually, um, the, it doesn't smell like terpenes. It doesn't seem to be uh, foul or it doesn't seem to be damaged, but it's just running slower. Is there any downside other than speed of operation to continue running that until it gets to a point where I just have to replace it based on speed? No, that that's exactly where it's at. If you're if all you're experiencing is a decrease in rate, then when you should replace it is, you know, just based on when that change in rate has become intolerable to you. Understood. Um, so, what is the most common cause of the of the failure of these membranes? So the failure is either you know pulling it because it's gradually gotten clogged and you don't want to put up with that anymore, or the other common causes are one that you didn't filter the feed. And in that case, what you're going to see is the membrane surface will get scratched. It'll start letting a lot more stuff through and you'll get colored permeates and more cannabinoids going through, you know, in a, in a more rapid amount of deterioration. That process, if you're running grit through it, is going to happen, you know, in the order of weeks, not on the order of months like the fouling does. And then finally, there's catastrophic failure that could occur because either you did something really weird with it, like you tried to force fluid through it backwards. The systems aren't even set up to do that, but if you did, that would definitely cause a failure. Or if you let them dry out, or if you, you know, accidentally smack them with something and, and crack their inner tube. Uh, those are those are things that would, you know, cause an immediate failure, but those are all kind of outside the normal spectrum of operation. Those mainly have to do with membrane housing, uh, handling, you know, when they're not in the system. So that being said, uh some of what we've talked about so far has to do with, um, you know, proper care and proper handling, being able to extend the life of these. Uh, I'd like to touch on, uh, on cleaning as far as the frequency of the cleaning and, and what your average shutdown process looks like for the day when you're running these. Um, you did mention that you always have to keep it wetted after it's become wetted for the first time. Um, so that's a big deal. Let's just talk a little bit about what it looks like while you're operating throughout the day, how to keep these things in good working order. So 
operating throughout the day, all that you have to do is turn the system on and turn it up to the recommended cross flow for whatever membrane you're using. Maintaining high cross flow keeps the membranes clean when they're actually turned on and running. And that's all you need to be doing is just making sure your stuff's been pre-filtered for grit and is running at the proper cross flow. So cleaning procedures are intimately linked with shutdown procedures because as long as the system's turned on, you don't need to clean. If you're running at 24 hours a day, you know, I wouldn't re- really even recommend stopping to clean it more than once a week or something. That's fantastic. But if you're turning it I but if you're turning it off at the end of the day, then you have to clean every time you're turning it off because the moment you turn that system off, it doesn't have the cross flow protecting it from fouling anymore. The grime is just sitting on it and is going to sink into its pores and structure unless you unless you clean it out first. So whenever you're going to turn the system off, first you should drain it and then you should run clean ethanol through it until all of the streams are running clean and no more oil color is coming out in, in either the permeate or the retentate. So that's a visual indicator then? That's a visual indicator. Okay. I mean, I, if, if that's a visual indicator you can use to make sure. What I really recommend is just following my manual's procedure, which is to do it for 30 minutes. And that gives plenty of time for, for that manual, for that, those visual indicators to arrive and have a safety factor on top of that. Understood. Now, what happens, I mean, how long can you leave it sit? Let's say you're a smaller lab and you don't have somebody to cover you while, while you guys go out to, to lunch. Um, let's say, you know, it's going to be down for 45 minutes. What, what do I do? If it's down for 45 minutes, I don't really think that's a problem. I, I do that all the time. I even, I even uh, you know, have, don't tell, any, don't, don't tell anybody to do this, but at my own lab, sometimes I have left them sitting uh, without cleaning at the end of the day and not had a problem, you know, it's just that over the course of days and weeks doing that as a regular practice is going to have accumulative results. Yeah. There's some, you know, some, some outliers that aren't SOPs that you can get away with sometimes, but just any bad habits like that, definitely not good to get into. Right. It's not a case I run into in my lab because I'm testing new membranes and I'm only using them, you know, for a little bit, unless I, it turns out I really like them. Understood. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, so the answer is, yeah, you go out for 45 minutes. It's not going to cause like a sudden or catastrophic failure, you know, but but maybe make arrangements to not have to do that every day because it may cause gradual failure to occur faster. And, you know, if you do that every single day for a month, then you might start seeing the effects of it. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, all of this stuff is really fascinating to me. I haven't seen any of them actually in use yet. And I know we had talked a little bit offline about me coming out and checking out what you got going on up at the shop. Yeah. I look forward to doing that and seeing all of that. Um, and, uh, hopefully I'll be able to do that sooner than later. Um, you know, just to, to wrap things up a little bit around here. Uh, I like to ask, uh, ask this question, to all my guests, what, what are you most excited about, um, regarding the future of the extraction industry? The most ex- thing I'm the most excited about regarding the future of the extraction industry, uh, I'm really excited for the moves I've seen now to switch on to USDA organic for products, actually. Uh, I've actually seen some people now for the first time getting specific parts of their process organic certified. I've been with the, working with a lab that has certification ongoing for their remediation process. I think that'll really uh, help you know weed out some bad practices in the industry and also generate a little bit of a of a new 
renaissance of discovery as everybody has to figure out how to make their processes work when their usual approaches have been ruled out by that regulation. Suddenly you'll have to think really hard. Okay, I can't use hexane anymore. Can I use, you know, vegetable oil? <laughs> that That's a non-polar solvent. So yeah, I guess uh, with, with more regulation, there always comes uh, more hurdles, which bring more innovation. That's uh, right. That's been a pretty consistent theme that I've found asking people in the equipment design space. That question is exactly that. What do we get to solve next? Yeah. I mean, the good thing about, the, about USD Organic is that you don't have to do it if you don't want to, but I think a lot of people would be excited to do it if it was available because it's something a lot of people want. Absolutely. Cool. I think you've made a really cool thing here, man. That's uh, I'm excited to see it in action. Um, if somebody wants to get a hold of you and figure out how your equipment can work in their lab or talk to you about consulting, what's the best way to get to reach out? I recommend they reach out to my email, uh, info at molecularforcesllc.com. And uh, of course, my website is at that same address, which lists the same uh, contact info, as well as some blog posts uh, detailing the process. And as you mentioned briefly there, I have a demo lab out in Beaverton that anybody who is interested in this process is certainly welcome to come out and see me running it. I'm there most days of the week and uh, I love guests and I love to show off. Yeah, I'd be proud of it myself if I were you. So well done, sir. Uh, Zev Feinstein, thanks for coming on the Modern Extractor. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Zev for joining us today. He's working on some really great stuff. I always love to see passionate people innovating to move our industry forward. In fact, I just booked travel to go check out his showroom in Portland. I'll definitely be putting up some pics and some quick videos from that on the show's Instagram, so stay tuned and check that out. Once again, if you'd like to get a hold of Zev, you can reach out to him via email, info at molecularforcesllc.com, or you can check out his Instagram, at magisterchemist, that's at M-A-G-I-S-T-E-R chemist, where you can see a bunch of great shots of his shop and his X-Spiral OSN systems. As always, if you want to hear about something specific on the show, let me know. Email me, jason at modernextractor.com. Make sure to follow the show on Instagram at the underscore modern underscore extractor. If you guys like the show, please subscribe and give us a rating. The more subscribers and better ratings we get, the better guests I can book for you here in the future. As I mentioned earlier, I'm very excited to announce the launch of Season 2, focusing on hydrocarbon extraction on May 4th. In the meantime, stay tuned for more bonus episodes leading up to that launch date. I've got a couple of good ones in the works. A big thanks to Isauto Venegas for handling business on the show's social media, and a shout-out to the new fools for bringing the funk to the Mod X theme song. Thanks again to everybody for tuning in to The Modern Extractor. I'm Jason Showered. Let's talk soon. <laughs>